You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 299, Interview with Michel Paradis about his book, Last Mission to Tokyo, the extraordinary story of the Doolittle Raiders and their final fight for justice. Michel Paradis is a leading human rights lawyer and national security law scholar. He has worked on war crimes cases around the globe, including for the Department of Defense on the military commissions in Guantanamo Bay. He is a lecturer at Columbia Law School and a fellow at the Center of National Security. Mr. Paradis, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So first of all, congratulations on a story that I did not know that was well told. It has elements of World War II, a legal thriller, revenge, cultural differences, what I'm in, that's something I'm always fascinated about. And it raises serious questions about how countries should treat foreign combatants. Um, and I just have to ask, how did you first learn about the Doolittle Raid? And how did this book come about for you? Sure. Well, the Doolittle Raid goes back to my childhood, mm-hmm. um, going to air shows. And this is, you know, dates me back to the 1980s. <laughs> um, I was much more interested, to be perfectly frank, in the, you know, the F-14 Tomcats um, sure. because Top Gun was out. And that's where <laughs> that's where my interest <laughs> lay. Um, but I remember I remember actually seeing uh, what must have been an old B-25, probably not a B-25B, but a B-25. And, right. and someone told me that that was the first plane that ever attacked Japan during World War Two. And I was a little boy at the time. Um, and, but that certainly stuck with me. I remember this big sort of fat glass nosed plane. Um, and so the Doolittle Raid is always sort of stuck in my mind. It's just a, you know, an epic moment in World War II history. Mm-hmm. And, but the finding of the case actually, uh, and ultimately what this book is about 
was totally, totally different and totally random. Um, I was working in the Bush administration, the Department of Defense, back in um, 2007. Right. And there was an ongoing debate as to whether or not waterboarding constituted torture. Mm. And we were, uh, had heard a rumor uh, that there was a case where the United States prosecuted uh, the Japanese for engaging in waterboarding. Right. And so we sent a young Marine captain out to the National Archives to dig out uh, this record that we were told would, would shed some light on this question about waterboarding. And lo and behold, it was the trial of the Japanese lawyers, generals, uh, prison wardens who were responsible for murdering and torturing the Doolittle Raiders. Um, and I remember sitting there just reading it with, you know, my eyes agog um, at what an incredible story it was. Um, and, and that's how I found the story. And so it brought these two very disparate threads in my life uh, together at the same time. That's incredible. Yeah, because you're sitting there asking this very important question at a very important time in American history. And then you find out, wait a minute, we were charging or accusing someone of doing the very same thing to our guys. So the, the irony obviously did not escape you. So you mentioned the uh, Department of Defense. Could you give us a little bit more about your background, please? Sure. So I've, um, you know, I've been a, a practicing lawyer for going on two decades, which is, <laughs> is a little anxiety inducing all by itself. Right. Um, and um, but one of the pri I, you know, I've done all sorts of uh, sorts of kinds of law. Uh, but one of the main areas of my specialization has been war crimes. Um, I've worked in Africa, in Central America, um, a little bit in, in the Netherlands, and then on the Guantanamo cases, right. working on uh, the military commissions to arise out of Guantanamo, uh, which are war crimes prosecutions, much like uh, what we, much like Nuremberg, which, much like um, the story I tell about here, which was a, a U.S. Army military commission mm. conducted in April of, uh, March and April of 1946 to prosecute the Japanese for war crimes. And um, something that even most lawyers don't know. Um, you know, most people know about Nuremberg, obviously, and then um, you know a slightly smaller group of people um, always know that there's a, a Japanese Nuremberg, the Tokyo trials. Um, but what most Americans and even most lawyers don't know is that there were literally hundreds of war crimes trials that the United States and other Allied powers uh, conducted throughout Europe and Asia, uh, prosecuting Germans and Japanese and even Italians um, for. Uh, gross violations of international law. And in fact, the United States was the, the tip of the spear on that. We were one of the leading lights uh, in terms of not only insisting that trials be conducted, but that fair trials <laughs> be conducted. The Soviets conducted a few trials too. Right. Um, I, I don't know if they've stood up uh, to the test of history in the same way that, that trials like the Doolittle trial, which I read about, have. Um, and, and that was a real innovation. Um, you know, there's a uh, probably apocryphal story that Winston Churchill tells about the uh, Tehran conference where they're discussing for the first time, what do we do with the Nazis after the war? Right. And he tells the story of Joseph Stalin proposing to just execute the top 50,000 Nazis. Sure. Uh, just make a, make a hit list, right. essentially. Um, and, and Churchill, you know, says in his memoirs, you know, I was aghast at such a thing. Um but the truth, and this came out, um, you know, th there had been rumors about this starting in the, in the 1990s, but, um, you know, the, some journals were published only in the past five, six years um, of members of Churchill's staff where Churchill was actually on board with that. He, you know, 50,000 was too much. And in fact, um, Roosevelt is supposedly to have said, 
well, wouldn't 49,000 be enough? <laughs> a compromise, <laughs> um, yeah. A compromise, yeah. Um, but uh, Churchill, you know, up until the very end of the war, right, even even at the at the um, uh, at the Alta conference, was advocating to essentially create a, a hit list of a few hundred Nazis right. to just have them be executed uh, on on site or on identification. Um, and Roosevelt um, pushed against that. He he said, "No, we have to have fair trials. We're not, we, we not only need to win the war; we need to win the peace." And the way to do that was to make American values, um, you know, things like due process, things like fair trials, things like human rights, um, which were not universal values in 1945, um, part of international law, part of the way the world will be from then on. And so it's actually one of the great legacies of World War II is this um, this how we treat our enemies um, and the standards that we use to 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 ensure not only that you know, that revenge, to not only satiate our desires for revenge, um, but to also see that justice is done in a way that will stand up to the test of history. So you make a a compelling point because one, the desire for revenge is obviously something that humans readily understand and give into at times. And, And the other thing is, you're right. I mean, you can't just take, say, whether it's 10 or 50,000 people and line them up without a trial. Because if you're due, you're, you're no better than the Nazis, you're no better than the Japanese that you're now trying. So again, it's this complex, I guess, battle between emotions, between the desire for revenge, but also one, you want to do it properly. But I, I've got to think at the time, the Americans were, were thinking, look, whatever we do now could reverberate down the years because we are the sole remaining superpower. So I, I do applaud those people who were like, as much as I want to line these people up and, sh- and shoot them, we do have to observe the laws because at some point, maybe some of our boys will be caught by the enemy. And we have to think about that as well. Yeah, and and that's really what you know. My book is about mm-hmm. is it? It's the you know. So everyone you know, certainly anyone listening to this podcast knows about the Doolittle Raid. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is you know far less talked about, or only ends up being maybe a you know a section of a chapter, and even the great studies of the Doolittle Raid that have been written, um, are the fate of the eight Doolittle Raiders who actually get captured. Right, sixty nine ultimately make it to freedom and get home. Three are killed in the uh, in the operation, right. um, but eight are captured. Uh, by the Japanese, subjected to incredibly brutal torture, including waterboarding, uh, including sleep deprivation, including, um, you know, being hung by the hands, uh, stress positions, like having a a bamboo pole put behind your knees as they stomp away at your thighs to essentially wrench apart your knee joints. You know, this is, this is some grisly stuff. Right. And, you know, the, the treatment of the Doolittle Raiders um, by the Japanese was motivated by revenge, mm-hmm. right? That they, These were the first Americans to ever attack Japan. These were the first foreigners to ever really successfully attack Japan, right. um, the mainland of Japan. And so the idea that, you know, these people deserved any rights was seen as soft, right? And the Japanese mm-hmm. just wanted to do whatever they could to them. And in fact, there were factions in the Japanese cabinet, particularly Hajime Sugiyama, who was the army chief of staff, who proposed, now that we've caught these eight guys, let's just behead them, right? Let's just execute them as publicly as possible to deter any other Americans from ever trying something like this again, because, you know, we need to, we need to send a message, don't attack Japan. Um, 
And what was remarkable to me, right? So I, I confess just coming at, you know, coming at this with, you know, maybe a naive understanding of the Pacific war that that's Mm. actually far more common having now written this book than I think people, uh, that I even recognized. Um, you know, I just, I just assumed, well, yeah, like that's of course what they would do. It's the Japanese, like look at the rape of Nanking. Um, but what, what really fascinated me and, and really was troubling in some ways, I'll be perfectly honest, it was troubling, was how seriously people in the Japanese government took the rule of law, international law, even things like human rights. Um, mm. And it, it opened Japan up to me, or at least wartime Japan up to me in a way that was in a way kind of troubling because – Unlike Nazi Germany or unlike fascist Italy, where you have these charismatic leaders who, once they're removed from power, um, you know, they're, they're no longer participants in the war. Um, you know, my counterpart for that in Japan, I'm sure most people's, is Tojo, right? Right. And, but Tojo is removed from power in 1944. And Japan continues to fight the war as, as aggressively and as brutally as it had um, for the previous four years. And what that betrayed is that Japan, in the war, wartime Japan, was essentially a, you know, a liberal country in the 1920s. They were the first country to ever sign the Geneva Conventions of 1929. Right. Um, but they had, you know, through a, a kind a combination of political fractiousness and a couple of attempted coups um, and and some just really, you know, bad policy making, to say the least, right. um, had become this deeply divided society, this deeply divided government between two very different versions of what Japan should be. On the one hand, you had this basically racist, fascist idea, you know, ideology, mm-hmm. but almost in equipoise in terms of their, you know, political power, um, were people who were kind of part of the, what had been, a, you know, a hundred year tradition almost at that point of Japan being a modern liberal society in the same way as the United Kingdom or even the United States would be, mm-hmm. um, People forget that in in Japan's war with the, with Russia at the turn of the 20th century, Japan actually had a better reputation for the treatment of prisoners than Russia did, wow. um, and was praised for that. Right? Japan was not. Japan was on the side of the Allies during World War One. Um, you know, it's change. It, it's lurch towards this kind of you know fascist and imperialist ideology um, was somewhat abrupt. And so, why 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 did they go to the trouble? of actually putting the Doolittle Raiders on trial. This was a, you know, a puzzle to me. Mm-hmm. Um, why didn't they just behead them? And it turned out that this, these irreconcilable factions inside the Japanese government with you know, liberals like Foreign Minister Togo you know, pitted against you know, fascists like Hajime Sugiyama um, you know, ha- essentially were forced to come to a compromise by Tojo. Uh, you know, Tojo was this sort of hapless... I, I sometimes analogize him to John Boehner, right? This kind of <laughs> this leader who's just trying to keep everyone from killing each other, um, you know, has very you know little in terms of uh, political credibility of his own um, to be able to lead. And uh, basically, what Tojo does is he goes to lawyers in the War Ministry, mm-hmm. um, Japan's War Ministry, and says, "We need to find a legal way of executing the Doolittle Raiders." And the lawyers, the Japanese lawyers, and this was an amazing find that I, I almost stumbled upon in the National Archives. It was literally in a box marked uh, uh, SCAP, Supreme uh, Commander for the Allies of the Pacific, right. miscellaneous, right? So it's the classic sort of just large <laughs> blank box in the National Archives. Um, and I found that the Japanese lawyers in the War Ministry, their initial answer was no, you can't. You can't execute them. It's right. illegal. 
Yeah. And and the message was sent back down to them. That's not the right answer. We need to find a legal way to execute them because otherwise the Kempe Tai, which is the sort of clandestine service secret police who's torturing the doodle raiders as all this is going on, mm-hmm. um, they're just going to kill them anyway and make it look like an accident or claim it's an accident. Right. And that's going to be completely politically unacceptable, both internally for our own, you know, because of our own divisions, but also diplomatically. Right. There are hundreds of thousands of Japanese at this point um, being held in internment camps inside the United States. Uh. And so they're. They're worried that this is going to set a bad precedent. Um, and so what the kind of over-clever lawyers in the war ministry ultimately come up with is this idea, well, if we if we come up with military commissions, if we come up with essentially a war crimes tribunal for the Doolittle Raiders, mm-hmm. uh, we can accuse them of atrocities against the Japanese, we can try them, and we can execute them. And that's what they do. Um, and it's they pass an ex post facto law. The law is written. Only only non-Japanese can be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And then they conduct this trial in August of 1942, relying on evidence derived from torture uh, to convict the literators of atrocities. They're all sentenced to death. And the emperor um, ultimately commutes the sentence of five of them. Uh, three are executed in October of 1942, and and five uh, are sentenced to essentially hard labor, uh, what we would call hard labor, what the Japanese called special treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and one dies of malnutrition. Uh, the four barely survive, uh, in, but are are sort of miraculously liberated in August of 1945. Wow. L- let me react to that real quick because you said something a minute ago. When you were saying that um, let's just kill them, make it as public as possible to teach the Americans if you try something like this again, this will happen again and again to your flyers. That was, if you zoom out from that idea for a second, that was pretty much the Japanese plan for the war in the Pacific, we're going to sucker punch the Americans, we're going to take out their fleet, we're going to grab a whole bunch of territory that we need for resources, and then as the Americans come, we will make them trying to retake that territory so costly when it comes mm. to lives, they will be, because Americans are weak and soft, they will mm. be forced to, go, to come to the negotiating table, we'll talk, we'll get to keep some of our, of the land that we've grabbed, and we can end this war. I mean, that was they, it wasn't so much this is guaranteed to work. They're like, this is the best chance that we have to end this war. But again, the premise was the Americans are soft. So again, they just didn't have a sense of I mean, Americans, let, let's let's be honest, we love our creature comforts. We certainly love uh, a, a steady paycheck and easy life. But if you piss us off, the other the other part of the American character comes out that just doesn't want to quit. And we we genuinely felt like we were wronged at Pearl Harbor. They bombed. There wasn't a declaration of war. So when you when you bring in the American sense of fair play and that's violated, we get we get pretty testy at that point. Yeah, we, we I, I don't know. What, I, I'll refrain from swearing, but we'll F you up. That's right. <laughs> right like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was revenge because, again, we, we saw ourselves as being sucker punched. Okay, so let's back up and let's set up the story. So Pearl Harbor comes along. It was brilliantly executed. They messed up the whole political timeline with declaring war. You know, I've already covered that. But but America literally sees itself as being sucker punched. Which So we're, so we're pretty pissed at this point. Now, FDR, 
the consummate politician, knows that he not only needs to do something to teach the Japanese a lesson in the short term, but he also needs to give something to the American people um, to give them hope, to say, yes, they did this to us, but this is just round one. We are just getting started, and we are not afraid to face the Japanese warriors who were seen as superhuman. They were seen as supermen. Mm. So how does the special aviation project number one, which I totally love that name, how does that come about? Yeah. So, right. And, and, and that's not even the half of it, right? It's not only that, you know, we, we can strike back against Japan. The war is going terribly in right. the first half of yes. 1942, right? Africa campaign is not going well. Uh, the Japan is on the march throughout Asia. The Bataan Death March is mm-hmm. is underway. Uh, we've lost the Philippines, which is our largest colony. Uh, Germany is on the march in Operation Barbarossa. Right. This is a this is the darkest days of this war for the United States. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and so what they end up doing is uh, you know an idea comes up. Can we take army bombers off an aircraft carrier uh, to attack Japan? And it's a kind of a ludicrous idea because you can't, right? It's actually, in 1942, it's, it's impossible. It's actually yeah. impossible. Um, yet, uh, the, the idea is passed along to um, a lieutenant colonel by the name of Jimmy Doolittle, uh, mm-hmm. who is a stunt pilot. He had served briefly in the Air Force in, in, um, in the late, uh, first half, in, uh, around World War I. Uh, thankfully, saw no action because he almost certainly would have been killed, um, right. as most pilots during World War I were. Um, and then goes on, uh, gets his PhD in aeronautical engineering, uh, what we would call aeronautical engineering from MIT. Right. He um, becomes a celebrity stunt pilot, uh, and he builds this reputation up for doing the impossible. So he's the first uh, first person to ever cross the United States in 24 hours, wow. right? And and that's and and like now we think, oh my God, 24 hours, right? We can get to California in five five hours, maybe or six hours. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I mean, think about the, the world shifting, like how, how much that would just shift your sense of space and time in, yeah. in, in the 1930s, right? Prior to that, the fastest way to get anywhere would be like a train, uh, you know, I mean, or, or cars, right? Car, the speed limit on most highways at the time was in the, you know, 35, 45 miles an hour range. Um, and so the idea that you could get from San Francisco to New York as quickly as you could get from, you know, New York to Philadelphia was just a, you know, it, it completely changes your sense of what America is, right? America looks is a much more intimate place. And so that that's where Jimmy Doolittle makes his name. And he does all these other things that make him look crazy, actually insane. One of the things he's most famous for um, is he uh, blacked out the windshield on his airplane, mm-hmm. uh, took off, flew 14 miles in a circle overhead and then landed his plane in Long Island without ever being able to see a foot in front of him. <laughs> and like, it's, it's totally insane, right? It sounds totally insane. Right. But what Jimmy do, but, but the trick, and this was sort of the amazing thing just to read about, he, he really should be much more of a household name than he is because right. he's such an amazing, such an American figure. Um, is that he, he was not like most flyboys of this era are kind of the Howard Hughes type, right? They're they're riding these planes like horses. Um, yeah. It's all from the gut. And Jimmy Doolittle understands at an early, like early in his flight career, that once you're up in the air, your sense of up, down, space, you know, it's completely different. Human beings are not meant to fly through the air. Right. Um, and so he realizes that in order to fly safely, 
you have to use math, right? You have to use instrumentation. You have to stop relying on your gut. You have to think your way. You have to calculate your way mm -hmm. um, through the problems of aviation. And that's why he gets his PhD. And this blind flying um, the stunt was, you know, not to show how he was insane. It was to show <laughs> you could actually fly a plane uh, solely based on the instrumentation, solely based on, you know, what is what what the numbers tell you. Right. And so when he's given this impossible mission of how do we attack Japan uh, in 1942, you know, he he is the perfect person to solve that problem, not because he's fearless, although he is. Um, mm -hmm. It's because he knows he has to make the numbers add up and he just treats it as this really difficult at the time, again, impossible engineering problem <laughs> where he just re-engineers the B-25 right. to turn them into flying gas cans um, and, and comes up with all sorts of finesse techniques to get a plane, you know, for example, turn, uh, you know, turning, the, um, turning the aircraft carrier into the wind so you get a headwind right away uh. um, so that you can get – off an aircraft carrier in a, in a plane that's designed to take off on a runway that's like three, four times as long as the deck of an aircraft carrier. Um, wow. And so, yeah, it's just this amazing, it's just this utterly amazing, you know, feat, not only of courage, and, and, and that's not to gain, say, the courage. The courage is insane, right? No, like, just oh, the yes. idea that he can do this is crazy. Um, but just of engineering, right? The ingenuity behind it, the same kind of like American ingenuity that leads to the light bulb and the iPhone, right? Is is the kind of ingenuity that leads to the Doolittle raid, and it's just a it's just a remarkable feat. And and so he does it, right? He gets sixteen army planes, army bombers, B twenty B twenty fives, off of an aircraft carrier on a what was understood at the time to be a one way mission over Japan, wow. and they were just. You know, hoping for the best, they end up having to take off uh, half a day early uh, because they're spotted by some Japanese picket boats, and that's that's not just you know losing the element of surprise oh. and now having to fly over in daylight. Right. You know, your range. You know, I mean, he's now hundreds of nautical miles further away, not only from Japan but from China, where they're hoping to to land. So you know, it's an incredibly improbable mission from the very beginning, and he pulls it off, which is why he becomes really one of the most celebrated heroes of the entire war, right. um, and certainly should be a household name today in ways that he unfortunately is no longer. You're absolutely right. I, I have to be honest with you. When I got to this part of your book and I read about Jimmy Doolittle, he's got the courage and the strength of Tarzan. He's a he's a Einstein. He, he can do all these things. I was expecting a 28 year old or something like this. Is he in his 40s at this point yeah, he's almost I'm, 50 what, yeah. that's not fair i mean this guy can do everything and he's my age or he's actually a little younger than me but oh my god i mean he's just a man's man and, and so you take him and then you take and, these, and, on, and on top of it i yes, just add this yes. one other feature because so he's been depicted in at least three films like feature films and he's gotten some pretty generous casting right? like, <laughs> like, like alec baldwin like square jawed yes. tall like you know, um, Aaron Eckhart was in Midway yeah. most recently. Good point. Um, and the real Jimmy Doolittle is like five foot eight, bald. You know, not in <laughs> best shape. Right? Like That's he, me. Paul Giamatti. That's me. Or, <laughs> or Jason Alexander would have been a much more I, true to life casting. So you're uh, saying I could play Jimmy Doolittle in the next World War II you film? You would be the most accurate depiction. <laughs> That's. In any World War II movie. But, but you can't discount his courage, and and, and like you just said a second ago. When he flies in the plane with the windows blacked out, is that courage? Yes, that's courage, but it's also relying on mathematics and science and other stuff. So he certainly is a brainy cove, and, and that shouldn't be lost. But when he gathers his crews, who I guess they're mostly in their 20s, uh, I'll let you tell me, but to tell a 20-something-year-old or something year old who may be married, who, who, who may be 
Either way, they're just starting life. Look, we're going on a one-way mission. I don't know if you're going to survive. We have a plan for you to survive, but let's be honest. I mean, how reliable is that? That's a whole nother level of courage for those guys to go. There's a decent chance I won't make it back. I'll become a prisoner. And we're all, we've all heard stories about the Japanese, but I volunteer for this mission. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. Oh yeah. And, and the way it's pitched and this is, this is sort of an, you know, I mean, I tried to put myself back in my 20-year-old mind um, in thinking about how I would hear this. Um, but the initial – initially, none of them know what they're doing, right? right. They, Jimmy Doolittle basically puts out and he calls out, I'd like volunteers for a dangerous mission. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, my 20s. Yeah. I'm in my 20s. Maybe I'm like, hey, I mean, I, I'm immortal. Um, I can do it. I can do that. Um <laughs> And, and that's what's actually kind of a crazy aspect of this whole thing is that he trains up all these crews, um, right. you know, about 120 men in all um, in Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And they don't get told what they're doing. You know, I mean, they're just taking off of a runway. They keep being told we have to get the plane off in 500 feet. Like that's the one wow. – the only thing you need to be able to do right. is get the plane off in 500 feet. And so they're you know, drilling on this for like a month. And ultimately, he flies everybody out. The, they're as good as they're going to be. He flies them all out to Alameda, California. Um, and they see all these planes being you know, dropped onto the deck of an aircraft carrier. It's, you know, pieces start coming together. Okay, we're in the Pacific. You know, right. We're putting these Army bombers on an aircraft carrier. But it's not until two days into the voyage on this aircraft carrier that over the loudspeaker, they announce, this task force is headed for Tokyo. And you know, it just wow. everyone all of a sudden just loses their mind right here we are finally april 1942 we're taking the fight back to uh, to the japanese we're getting yeah. you know getting our peace for pearl harbor um and so it's just an electrifying moment and it's then uh that they start going through briefings on how what exactly it is they're going to be doing and how they're going to plan to to do this bombing raid on tokyo i just have to say like you were saying a second ago yeah in my 20s you could talk me into something like that but 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 i have to think that the desire for revenge was was one of the strong motivating factors yeah we're finally gonna give back to to those guys who who sucker punched us at pearl harbor i mean that had to be a part of it too and and I'm not judging the Americans because that's a very natural thing. I mean, the idea to be able to strike back at these people who, you know, we lost thousands of people at Pearl Harbor. It's time for a little payback. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and what's in, what was interesting, in too, in, in unpacking some of this is, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, certainly natural, certainly understandable. Everyone can sympathize with that idea. Yeah. Um, and the pilots, you know, when they were doing the target selection, the pilots actually drew cards uh, to see who would get to bomb the Imperial Palace, right? Wow. They wanted to punch Japan back in the nose tw right. at least as hard as they had punched us uh, at Pearl Harbor. And Jimmy Doolittle put a stop to it, right? He came in and said, no, we're not attacking the Imperial Palace. Um, that is not a military target. We're going to be attacking uh, airplane uh, factories. We're going to be attacking oil refineries. We're going to be attacking other factories that are there because it's our objective. And this was this came out of the Air Force Tactical School that he was the the so-called bomber mafia mm -hmm. um, that he was acolyte of. Um, the way to win a war with air power is to take out the enemy's um, ability to wage war. Right. So you go after right. factories. You go after uh, the military targets like military bases and airports. Um, but you leave the civilians alone, and that's not only important because. 
it's the right thing to do. And that, that can't be emphasized enough, right? Like taking the civilians out of the equation was part of American policy at the time mm-hmm. because it is the right thing to do. We, ha- we, you know, we have human rights. Um, we have uh, the, the sense of, you know, the dignity of every person. Right. Um, but it's also bad strategically. Let's just be honest, right? And yes. Demi Doolittle says this quite frankly, right? He, he was looking, um, in, in figuring out how to conduct the raid, he took a model from the European theater, which was going on, right? He looked at the Battle of Britain and he understood that as the Germans were taking out, you know, the electrical power, they were taking out the docks, they were taking out, you know, the various factories and, mm-hmm. and means of sort of daily life and war material in London, morale in England was sinking and sinking and sinking. And it wasn't until the, the Germans started attacking the um, Buckingham Palace right. that the Brits were sort of able to rally. And, you know, they, they were like, if the king can take it, so can I. Wow. Um, and and he understood that that was that was at the front of his mind. If you go to his his planning, you know the memos he's writing as he's planning this mission, um, and so he's like, no, we can't we can't give the reason we can't give the Japanese a reason to rally. Um, this has to be a show of our force of our values and the fact that we're going to win this war and take out their ability to to ever do anything like Pearl Harbor ever again. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Absolutely. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because Doolittle can only take so many planes. Those planes have only so many bombs. There's only so much damage they could do. But yeah, you do want to strike military targets because that's what's best for the war effort. And it's also what's best as far as um, the way you treat fellow human beings. So he certainly should be admired for that. Um, could you introduce us to Chase Nielsen, who is who is pivotal in your book and the story overall, and then maybe give us some of the details of the raid itself? Sure. So Chase Nielsen is, um, you know, a, a good Mormon boy from Hiram, Utah, a small <laughs> town in Utah. Right. Um, actually ends up, he's, he's scheduled to get married uh, in, I think it was, I think it was actually December 8th oh of 1941. Right. Um, and obviously Pearl Harbor changed a couple things. And so he ends up getting deployed up in Oregon. Uh, and his um, and his fiance ends up coming up to Oregon to elope with him. Right. Um, so he actually ends up getting married uh, in December of 1941. Um, he is one of the young men who is just as unable to resist the allure of a dangerous mission as all the others. Right. Um, but it's complicated for him, right? He's, he's, he's leaving a, a wife. He's leaving his wife, which is not something most of the other Doolittle Raiders. There were other married Doolittle Raiders like right. Ted Lawson, who's the author of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Um, 
but that was a, he was a rarity in that respect. Uh, mm. These are young men. <laughs> um, right. And he, uh, but he, he, he gets the, uh, he, he takes the assignment. Uh, he gets assigned as the navigator on, on plane number six. He's got a real good head for numbers, just like Doodle in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, navigates the plane successfully over Tokyo. They attack their targets. Uh, but as they're flying uh, to what they hope is a rendezvous point inside of China, right. um, the plane starts running out of gas. And the pilot of the plane, uh, you know, a, a Texas football player by the name of Jungle Jim, Hall, uh, Jungle Jim Hallmark, um, <laughs> says, you know, everyone put your Mae Wests on. We're right. about to hit the water. Damn. Uh, so they put their and, – and they just crash. They, they crash hard um, off the Chinese coast. Two, two of the, uh, the bomber, the bombardier and the gunner are, are basically both killed in the crash. Uh, they, they, they survive the immediate crash but die within a few minutes of their wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nielsen – the pilot and co-pilot um, in the middle, you know, this is at nighttime. This is in the dark. It's in the rain. Wow. Uh, it's cold. It's still April. Um, end up floating to shore and are rescued by some locals in China uh, in a little town called Shuxi, uh, which is about a few hundred miles south of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're taken in. Um, they are looking for ways to try and get to safety, to get further inland uh, to where uh, American allied Chinese forces may be. Uh, they come across some ch- or some Chinese guerrillas, I should say, come across them right. uh, when they come into Zhuxi. They think everything's going to be oh fine. <laughs> uh, and then all of a sudden get handed over to the Japanese army. Oh. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> And the uh, the Japanese lieutenant in charge says, "You know, worry, we treat you fine." Mm. Um, and you know, at first that was true. You know, right. they they get taken up on the caravan; they're not treated too bad as they're taken up uh, to Shanghai. But once they get to Shanghai, they fall into the hands of the Kempei Tai, who who I mentioned earlier are basically Japan's clandestine service, secret police. I could right. I could talk to you for hours about them. They're they're a sort of a horrifying uh, horrifying entity. Um, that has a notorious reputation among the Japanese, right? right. The Japanese are terrified and, and hate the Kempei Tai. Um, and he's, he's just brutally tortured um, for an entire day. Um, at one point, they take these thin little sticks. It's the, it's the one that just sends chills down my spine, so I'll, I'll tell you about it. Right. Is, um, you know, they're, they're just brutaling, brutalizing him in ways I talked about before, but then at one point, they pin his hand down to the table. And they take out these tiny little sticks that look like thin pencils mm-hmm. and then just pierce them between the webbing of his fingers down into the nerves of his oh, fingers. Oh, God. And just start squeezing his hand and twisting the pencils. And the way he describes it is just you know, jaw-clenching. Like you just – oh, right. it goes right through you. The, the kind of just sharp, un, unignorable pain that that would cause. Yeah. Um, you know, he's beaten. Uh, he spends the night hung from his hands. Uh, in a prison cell until he's taken to Tokyo, uh, into a secret prison that the Kempei Tai sets up inside of Tokyo, uh, in which to hold them. Uh, he, along with the eight other or seven other uh, Doolittle Raiders who get captured, are interrogated aggressively. Um, they're forced to confess to atrocities against the Japanese. Can I ask real quick, um, as far as you could tell, because I'm not sure how much of this has been um, uh, cleared up or whatever, do we know if, if the Doolittle Raiders pretty much was able to stay on target as far as their objectives? Um, I, I imagine there were cloud cover or whatever, but do, do we know if they did a decent job as far as what Doolittle wanted them to go after? Um, so so it's, it's, it's difficult to know, I think, sure. is the basic answer. Right. Um, you know, all the Doolittle Raiders, you know, report hitting their targets. But I think just confirmation bias, everyone's sure. going to say, yeah, I hit my target. Right, right. on. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
the, um, some scholars associated with the Japanese Defense Forces about 15, 15 20 years ago um, did uh, a pretty in-depth study trying to use as many U.S. records and Japanese records as possible to you know, trace flight paths, mm -hmm. um, identify targets. And there was actually a fair bit of accuracy. Um, some of the places that were hit um, were, in fact, factories, but they may have – I mean, they weren't necessarily the factories. They were probably assigned. Like one was a clothing factory. Right. Um, not, I mean, not a steel mill, for example. Uh, but things like steel mills uh, or the Kawasaki plant um, were actually hit, uh, mm -hmm. and that was, you know, those were the the intended targets. Um, same thing was true in Nagoya. Um, the the things got a little dicier, and I think we got to be frank about this, um, yeah. particularly with the use of incendiary bombs. Um, sure. The all of the uh, Doolittle Raiders uh, were equipped both with uh, demolition bombs, right, sort of just traditional 500-pound gravity bombs, mm -hmm. um, but also uh, incendiary bomb clusters. And the basic fact, if we're honest, about an incendiary bomb is you can't drop an incendiary bomb accurately, yeah. right? They're basically the size of a baseball. Right. Um, once they get released, it's basically a shot. It's the equivalent of a shotgun. Right. Um, and, and Japan is made of wood in the early 1940s, mm -hmm. um, and so it was pretty inflammable. Um, and so a lot of the incendiary bombing uh, um, ended up doing um, some some damage. You know, it's not that much bombing. Let's be perfectly frank about that, too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're only only dealing with 16 planes. Um, but there was, you know, some significant incendiary bomb damage to civilian targets in, in Tokyo suburbs, especially. Right. Um I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be collateral damage. But see, that's that's one of the things I enjoyed about your your book. The 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 irony never escaped me. We are at war. I'm bombing you. I'm trying not to bomb your civilians. I'm trying to bomb military targets. But those civilians are helping with the war effort. So it's this it's this murky it's it's this morass that I, I to this day still have a hard time because like I think it was Churchill that said we bomb the factories but we also bomb the civilians because they're the ones working in the factory so so it gets really ugly really quick but the reason I bring that up is because when people like Chase Nielsen and the other pilots I'm assuming the majority of the pilots eventually made it to free China or were helped whatever but and you can tell me about that in a moment but. Are they being asked questions of, while they're being tortured, or is it simply just, "Hey, you bombed our homeland, and now we're going to make you suffer"? Uh, a little of both. Let's be right. perfectly candid. Right. Um, you know, that's typically what we see in, in when torture is being used. Mm -hmm. um, the you know, there, there's some desire to get information. Um, probably more desire to get what's called confirmation as opposed uh, to information. Right. right. Like, like you bombed civilians, didn't you? You know, gotcha. torture. Yes, I did. Right. That's sort of the the traditional way in which not only torture is used, but also really the only way that torture is proven to be effective. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. If you're if you're trying to get reliable information out of somebody, torturing them is actually a pretty bad way of doing it. Not only because they'll tell you whatever you want to hear, and that's basically true. Um, but just you know, I mean, if you're getting someone to try and remember something. Um, Putting them under extreme stress uh, and pain is not a good way to help someone sure. think through what can sometimes be murky or difficult things to remember um, right. in, a, in a clear way, and it can it can actually be very destructive of your ability to get reliable information. Um, but if you're only trying to get something from the horse's mouth. Um, 
beat the horse because the horse will tell you <laughs> what Absolutely. you want to hear. Absolutely. Um, and so, like when we look at the Soviets and you know in Korea, you know U.S. POWs being tortured by the by the um, by the North Koreans and Chinese, um, you know that's where torture is really effective. It's to to get these kind of false confessions um, to 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 what you want to hear. Um, and so, so that was some of it. That was a lot of that was a lot of the torture. They were also very interested. The Japanese were very interested in getting the details of the raid itself. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things everyone forgets um, in looking back is kind of what I said, you know, earlier on is in 1942, what they did was impossible. Right. No one yeah. knew how that actually happened. Um, oh. And and so. You know, Roosevelt, um, you know, put out the word very fast. Mum is the word. Uh, and if the po- and if the news media asks where the bombers took off, first of all, to deny that they're American bombers, or at least don't mention it, right. um, and and speculate that they took off from Shangri-La, right? That's where <laughs> this sort of show comes from. Right. Is, you know, this magic Himalayan paradise where we're sending army bombers. Um, and so for months, there was a lot of, you know, speculation in the press about how exactly this, this attack on Japan took off? Were they taking off from secret bases inside China? Were they taking off um, with new bombers from you know uh, elsewhere and over the Himalayas in the China-Burma-India theater? Um, were the Soviets secretly involved? Were we, did we still have positions in the Philippines? Right? There are any number of possibilities at this point. Um, and so the idea that, it w- that bombers could take off like that from an aircraft carrier and go that kind of distance was, te- you know, again, just technically impossible. Right. Um, and so one of the things the Japanese were very, you know, uh, insistent about uh, or interested in was figuring out exactly how it happened, and and this idea that Japan was vulnerable to carrier-based attacks ends up being, you know, a kind of a bugaboo in J- Japanese war strategy because mm-hmm. it may, it leads them to make terrible decisions, such as committing to and then hastening uh, the attack on Midway, um, right. which is directly traceable to the Doolittle raid and end up being you know catastrophic for Japan's ability to. Um, you know, ever really mount an offensive operation in the Pacific again. They lose four aircraft carriers. Um, wow. So, you know, so torture can lead you some down some pretty dangerous paths. Um, and, and and the dual rate is certainly a sign of that. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a part of your book I want to talk about, but I, I don't want to give too much away because this is where we get into the meat of your story. Mm-hmm. So clearly these American, I, I think you said there's seven or eight of them, the, the American pilots, they have to be tried, you know, and you already said earlier, do we try them? Do we execute them? And your book really helped me understand that the, the um, court system, the lawyers in Japan were fiercely independent. It's just that the military was in charge of the darn government. So there's only so much uh, the legal profession can do, but they do insist upon a trial. So, okay, we have to have a trial, but these are just soldiers and this is war. So they were pretty much doing their job. So, but still the Japanese have to come up with a way we have to be able to find a way to justify killing them. And so there is going to be a trial. Could you tell us some about, and and I think you mentioned some of it previously, but they are pretty much bending the rules. Uh, Legal rules are also uh, almost bending common sense to be able to find some way to charge these guys. And, and between the torture and the lack of uh, things being interpreted, a lot of the American pilots don't even know it's, they don't know the details of what's going on. Yeah, it's a, you know, I mean, it's the quintessential, you know, uh, Alice in Wonderland sentence first, judgment later, mm-hmm. um, where 
the you know the Japanese have an outcome they know they need to get to. They need right. to get to a sentence of guilt and sentence of death, or a conviction of guilt and a sentence of death. Right. And um, and they're one of the one of the villainous characters without without getting into spoilers because I think some of the you know things that sort of come up in the American trial in 1946 are just so stunning and interesting that I I don't want to spoil it for readers. Sure. But, um, you know, there is kind of a, what can only be called a conspiracy by uh, led by one Japanese lawyer in particular who kind of masterminds the whole show trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, OK, we have to get convictions. Um, we have this ex post facto law that the war ministry has given us. That's probably illegal, but we can probably fudge some arguments for why it's not. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and then he and then he looks at the evidence and he's like, look, we need I need more evidence. <laughs> I yeah. need evidence that proves them guilty of atrocities. And he basically puts that back to the Kempe Tai and the Kempe Tai sure enough comes back with evidence, including, um, you know, the confessions by the Doolittle Raiders that were allegedly personally signed by each man mm-hmm. um, to committing atrocities against the Japanese. And there's an old Soviet expression, the uh, uh, the queen. um the, the confession is the queen of all evidence. Right. And so they have these confessions of the Doolittle Raiders that are sort of almost almost comically self-incriminating, <laughs> right? right. Where, where the Doolittle Raiders are clearly at best being, if they're authentic at all, they're being you know pretty carefully coached onto exactly what they're being expected to say under torture. Um, and those confessions are admitted at their trial. Uh, the trial itself lasts maybe an hour. Wow. Uh, they're, you know, the, only, only one lawyer is assigned to be one of the judges. Uh, and he is essentially part of this conspiracy. His name is Husei Waco. Uh, he's not the leader of the conspiracy, but he's, he's certainly a central part of it. Uh, he knows what the score is as we, as we, as we used to say. Um, and you know, they have this hour long trial. Uh, very little is translated competently. They're barely given notice of what they're accused of. They're not given the right to call their own witnesses. They're not given lawyers to defend them. Mm. Uh, one of the Doolittle Raiders, the Jungle Jim Hallmark, who I mentioned before, this you know big, thick necked Texan <laughs> football player, you know, who's like two twenty right. uh, pounds at the start of the war, has withered down to like hundred and forty pounds because wow. he has. Uh, what's probably dysentery um, that he got in Japanese custody. He's barely conscious, laying on the floor. Flies are buzzing over his face Mm -hmm. in the August heat. Uh, And he's put on trial, too, right? And he's convicted, too. Um, You know, it's the the classic show trial um, where everyone knows what the outcome is. We're just going through the formalities of it to to make sure we all get to the death sentence that everyone knows is coming. And, um, And that's what they get. Right. They they within within that afternoon, in fact, the Japanese judges go and deliberate and that afternoon uh, convict all of them and sentence them all to death, which I should say just as a as a footnote, Mm -hmm. the um, the enemy airmen's law, which is this ex post facto law, the Japanese army promulgates to prosecute the Doolittle Raiders uh, initially said that uh, the punishment could be up to the punishment of death for any offense. And that's the first draft that's sent out. Uh, and then, but there's concern that the death sentence might not be imposed. And so they revise it right before they promulgate it. Uh, they revise the law to say the only sentence that can be posed is death. Right. So they guarantee, they guarantee the death sentence. And, um, and so sure enough, they get the death sentence they're all asking for. And this goes back to the cabinet, the Japanese cabinet in Tokyo. Um, by this point, right, this is September of 1942, and the war has taken a turn, right? You've already had the Battle of the Coral Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Japan has this you know disastrous defeat at Midway. Um, a couple of the other major strategic changes that Japan makes um, in response to the Doolittle raid are it starts pulling back um, its air force. Um, I think um, I want to say it's like four or five of Japan's 36 fighter squadrons are immediately redeployed back to the mainland um, as home defense because wow. you know the army just had done a terrible job of defending Japan, right? Yes. The graders all get through unscathed. Um, and so they redeploy a lot of their air power uh, to the mainland, which essentially forfeits air superiority throughout the, uh, out the Pacific. Uh, and it's a disastrous strategic mistake, mm -hmm. uh, or operational mistake, I guess. Um, and same thing with their, their China strategy. Um, you know, by m the middle of 1942, uh, Japan has basically pacified most of China. There's still... You know, pockets of China that are under the control of Chiang Kai-shek or warlords who are allied with Chiang Kai-shek and mm -hmm. therefore the United States. Um, Mao and the People's Liberation Army are still, you know, operating in certain parts of China. Right. Um, but certainly the major cities have been completely pacified uh, by the Japanese by the middle of 1942. Um, and the... Doolittle raid because the Doolittle raiders essentially crash land in China and and sixty nine of them get to safety mm -hmm. um, by by hooking up with in in um, with Chiang Kai Shek's forces in wow. Free China, um, the the Japanese just go on a total campaign of of maniacal blind revenge, right? Um, and just do you know you know there it's always difficult dealing with war casualties is always difficult as a you know precision precise historical matter. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, you know, credible estimates that tens of thousands, as many maybe as fifty thousand Chinese, uh, are killed in a operation that is conducted after the Doolittle raid, where China redeploys its, in, excuse me, the Japanese completely redeploy the China Expeditionary Army's forces to simply destroy every airfield in right. China. And not only is this a huge waste of resources um, in what had been, you know, I mean, again, from a, you know, a strategic standpoint, a largely successful pacification mm -hmm. or what we might call a counterinsurgency operation in China um, to, you know, completely alienates the Chinese, as you might expect. Right. Um, it's not only brutal and sadistic, it's, it actually destabilizes China. Um, and all of a sudden it hardens the opposition to the Japanese, which was by no means hardened in 1942, right? Most of China, or at least significant parts of China, are governed by um, Wang Jingwei, mm -hmm. who is a, uh, you know, for the Republic, quote unquote, Republic of China, um, who is allied with Japan, um, yes. you know, much like Vichy France was allied with Nazi Germany. Um, and the combination of moral and security authority that the Japanese and Wang Jingwei had had been at least been building up to that point in parts of China uh, that kept it under control um, were forfeited just because of this stupid operation to destroy all these airfields. Um, and so it was a, it was a total disaster um, right. in, in to sort of Japan's strategy. Well, and because uh, originally when they go to uh, China, it's for money and resources. You know, hey, we want to be the dominant country in this region. We want everybody to give their stuff to us. We want to be an economic power. That's what you do. And now right. all of that is being destabilized by their own actions and their thirst for revenge. So it's so it's basically yeah. starting to fall apart for the Japanese. And I, and yeah. I and so in, yeah yeah and so in so in September when the verdict comes back to the cabinet, right. Japan's position in the war is so much more vulnerable uh. Uh, than it had been even a few months before, and so the another debate breaks out where Sugiyama again says, "Well, we got the convictions. Let's all execute them like we planned." Right. Um, but Tojo surprisingly ends up being 
you know, the the voice of, you know, not necessarily reason, but sort of moderation. <laughs> sure. Um, and proposes a compromise where only the pilots and one of the gunners uh, are going to be ultimately sentenced to death and persuades Sugiyama to go in for a compromise where the emperor commutes the sentence of the five others to this life with special treatment that I mentioned before. Right. So so the, po- the point I want everybody to remember is that there's still some prisoners who are alive because some of them are executed. And I want to save that for the readers of the book. But as and correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as America itself knows, we don't know that several of their of their sentences had been commuted. We assumed or we believed they were all executed. That's right. So in October of 1942, the Japanese announced that the Dula Raiders have been punished. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of diplomatic correspondence back and forth between the United States and Japan saying, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> um, and, and the Japanese basically play coy. Um, and by, you know, the first anniversary of the Dula Raid in 1943, the, you know, the reasonable assumption based on what Japan had said is that they were all murdered. I mean, they were all executed. Yes. And and this hits the public, you know, tie, you know, if, you know, Roosevelt, as you said at the beginning, great politician, probably one of our best in all, you know, best presidents in all of, uh, of our history, mm-hmm. uh, in part because he was such a great politician. And he he released the information about the Doolittle Raiders uh, being executed at the same time as uh, on the first anniversary of the Doolittle Raid. So oh. where they released for the first time the full details of how the raid was pulled off. Um, and it was a really galvanizing moment uh, in inside the United States. Like it really rekindled um, what had been kind of a flagging wartime spirit, right? By 1943, right. the war is going better, but it's it's a slog. Oh, yeah. um, and you know, Roosevelt knows he needs to keep the country engaged. Like the 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 fever um, for revenge and to commit to this war that had existed after Pearl Harbor was you know was was cooling. Um, and this regalvanizes public you know, public support for the war in, in a big way. Um, but what's actually, and if you don't mind a slight digression, just sure. maybe this is me as a lawyer finding this stuff fascinating. So I hope you, hopefully your, your listeners do too. Okay. Um, but what, what I found fascinating about this particular moment too is, you know, there had certainly been discussions about war crimes prosecutions before this all is revealed in April of 1943. There had mm-hmm. been largely sort of generalities about, you know, we will, um, we will hold people accountable. We will start in, in, in starting in like late 1942, there's this idea we're going to start tracking the war crimes being committed by the Axis powers. Um, but in not unlike what, you know, Churchill and Stalin's reactions were at the Tehran conference, which is at the end of 1943, you know, if we, if we remember, Mm -hmm. um, is the American public wants to commit just gross, not, not all the American public, but there is a, there's a public outcry sure. for, you know, violent revenge against the Japanese to avenge the Dula Raiders. You have members of Congress saying, let's just start executing all of the Japanese prisoners. Oh. And Roosevelt and Secretary of War Stimson say, no, we're not going to do that. Right. We're going, you know, we have a, we have committed to the Geneva Conventions. We have committed to human rights. We will get justice for those responsible. Um, but mm-hmm. the rest of Japan, we are not at war with Japan's people. We are at war with their militarists. Um, right. And it's the first real, you know, real substantive, like meaningful inkling that we're going to do. We're not going to kind of do what Julius Caesar did to Gaul, <laughs> right. right? Like, we're not, or, or, or to Carthage, right? Or to, yeah. you know, after the war. Like, we're, go, we're different. And, and that was just a really remarkable thing, right? He, he quite you know, knowingly fomented this public outrage at what yes. the Japanese had done to the point where Hollywood actually makes a movie the year later called The Purple Heart that imagines the the 
the show trial uh, and execution of the Doolittle Raiders. Um, wow. and, and imagines a trial that's a lot more fair than the one that happened in real life, to be honest with you. Right. Um, but he takes this moment to say, you know, we are better than that. Yes. Um, and in, and in fact, when that movie called the, you know, the Purple Heart was being the script was being reviewed by the the wartime censors for the Hollywood scripts, the comment they got back um, was they wanted to de-emphasize the responsibility of the Japanese people and to emphasize that it was the warlords of Japan who were responsible for this atrocity, not mm-hmm. not because that's who we were at war with. We weren't at the war with the um, the, the civilians, the people of Japan. And so it's this it's this really again, I, it, it's easy to take that kind of humanitarianism for granted because we've all grown up in sure. the legacy of you know the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Geneva Conventions of 1949. Like we, that's all just part of the water we've all been swimming in for you know, certainly my lifetime. Right. Um, but to to see that far ahead in 1943, um, you know, there, were, there weren't a lot of historical precedents for that. Quite the opposite. The historical precedents all pointed, you know, to severity, to to vindicating revenge, the desire for revenge, if nothing else. Right. Um, and, um, you know, so the fact that people like FDR, um, you know, had that had that foresight, uh, had that you know mm-hmm. commitment to really core American values is just it, it, it's worth taking a moment to just stop and realize what an amazing innovation um, that was, uh, that we, that we, the United States were largely responsible for. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after you can unwind using their free high speed Wi-Fi. tonight, La Quinta tomorrow, you shine book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, I'm I'm always impressed when I come across visionaries in history books because I'm like, there's no way I could have seen that far down the road. So people like that always impress me. But when I got to that part of your book, it reminded me of a modified saying, you know, the law is like the military. It's not a broadsword. It's a scalpel. And you just punish those who did something wrong and not just blanket charge everybody of a crime. And so so FDR and others certainly get credit um, for, for wanting to do that, even though the American bloodlust is quite high after they announce all the information about the do little raiders, but I did want to. Um, so, so the Ameri- so there are still some American POWs. They're not being treated very well. They're losing weight, uh, and I don't think I truly appreciated what solitary confinement did to a human being until I read your book. I mean, that is an incredible form of torture. It doesn't matter that they're not being hit, but they're just left with their own thoughts. And, and I don't think I truly appreciated um, what they're going through. And you can certainly speak to that if you'd like to, but I want to skip some stuff because I want to save it for the readers. Cause kind of the transition of from this point to say April of 1943 until the end of the war is absolutely incredible in your book. But if, if you want to talk about the solitary confinement, please do. But then I was going to ask you to maybe jump ahead and talk about operation magpie. Yeah. Um, so right, as you said, the solitary confinement is is probably the most brutal of the tortures, and that's very counterintuitive for a lot of right. people. Um, but John McCain, if you've ever read uh, Faith of My Fathers, mm. talks about it quite eloquently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, he was obviously subjected to some pretty brutal uh, torture. You know, his arms never—he could never raise his arms above his head again wow. uh, by the North Vietnamese. Um, and but he described the solitary confinement as the worst part of his captivity. Wow, um, that, it, that it really just breaks. 
Yeah, it is. You know, it yeah. breaks a man down. Um, but yeah, Operation Magpie is a great, you know, I mean, it, it's a great sort of piece of this story. Um, you know, the Office of Strategic Services, most people know, forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. um, after the bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, before the war is technically over on August 15th, um, gets the word that they're to change their commando missions in, the, in China um, to rescue missions. Right. Uh, and so each of these operations gets the name of a bird, and Operation Magpie uh, is dedicated to liberating the Feng Tai prisoner of war camp, which is on the outskirts of Beijing. And they don't, and, and let me just say, no one knows the Doolittle Raiders are alive at this point. Everyone assumes they're dead, right? They're dead. In, if they're right. dead in a the movie, <laughs> they're dead, right? Yes, that's that's sort of the traditional American way of thinking about it. <laughs> if Hollywood says they're dead, they're dead. Um, and, but they go to this prisoner of war camp and it's, you know, like two or three days, if I'm remembering correctly, after, um, after the surrender of Hero 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 surrender on August fifteenth, mm-hmm. and they drop into this field outside of Feng Tai and are slowly approaching. It's late afternoon. They're slowly approaching this prison camp. It's a team of just six guys, six commandos, wow. and all of a sudden some pops start going off and they start taking fire from the prison camp. And they hit the dirt, and ultimately this lieutenant comes out and rounds them all up and basically, you know, and they find out within a few minutes. No, none of the Japanese soldiers know that the war is over. Oh, Only the officers know. Right. Uh, and they're like, look, had you guys come at night, you would be dead. Yes. Because we would be, you know, the officers would be in bed, and these guys would have just shot you. Oh, my God. Um, and, but, so they survived. They survived this initial altercation <laughs> with the Japanese outside the prison camp. Right. Um, and then through negotiation, um, you know, to some extent, the help of the Swiss legation as well, uh, liberate 500 allied prisoners of war in the Feng Tai prisoning camp wow. and put them up at this repurposed geisha house, this geisha hotel <laughs> in Beijing, where all these prisoners of war, you know, their first good in five years, they're, uh, you know, they're pilfering all the sake and the beer from the, from the, from the refrigerators. Right. And, um, you know, just this, this reverie, you know, I mean, this celebration of not only victory, but liberation. And while this is all going on, the lead of the commando unit, um, this guy, uh, Ray Nichols, um, here's a rumor that the Doolittle Raiders uh, were in Feng Ta. None of the guys in, in the Grand Hotel de Wagon Lee, which is this hotel in Beijing, were Doolittle Raiders. And so he, he has he gets in the face of the prison warden at Feng Ta. I know the Doolittle Raider here, don't you lie to me. Right. And sure enough, the prison warden goes to a secret part of the prison uh, where they've been holding the Doolittle Raiders mm. uh, and brings them out. And one of them is unable to move. One of them they is actually dead, a guy named George. Um, but the other three are brought out, you know, are shaved quickly. Um, right. They're put in oversized uniforms and let out in front of the camp. And, you know, Nichols reaches over to one and it's Chase Nielsen. And he says, who are you? And he's like, my name's Chase Nielsen. I'm a Doolittle Raider. Oh. And Ray Nichols sort of like has a wry smile as, as, as the story is told, he gets this wry smile and he's like, watch out for this guy. He's off his rocker. Um, <laughs> because everyone thinks the Doolittle Raiders are dead. Yeah. Sure enough. You know, there they are. Lazarus Lazarus is back from the dead. Right. Uh, the Doolittle Raider couple, the Chase Nielsen, along with two of the other Doolittle Raiders, uh, get their own couple days in the Grand Hotel de Wagon Lee to celebrate uh, before they're taken to Chongqing, uh, which is the main air base, in U- the main U.S. air base at the time, uh, where they're interviewed for the first time by war crimes investigators. And that's kind of one of the leaping... The jumping off points for the you know the broader story that my book tells, as you know, right. um, and then ultimately finally get their you know make their way home. 
So again, I want to skip some stuff in the book. So they so they've rescued the uh, the prisoners, the Doolittle Raiders, and obviously there has to be a trial because the Americans have to figure out what's happened to these people. And when they do question them, there's some horrendous, um, like you were mentioning earlier, some horrendous actions taken against these Americans. But if you could for us, because this is the part of the book for people who like legal thrillers, this is the part of the book. I don't want to ruin it for you. But if you could give us um, a sense of some of the American prosecutors who was actually being charged of the Japanese and the and the uh, defense counsel and the part of your story that that I really enjoyed was the defense counsel Americans. They weren't just going to lay there and take it. They actually did. They were very active in defending these Japanese um, soldiers. And it, 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 it almost, you know, looks for like for a while that they're, they're going to carry the day because they take their charge very seriously. Yeah, it's you know, I mean, th- th- so this is the meat of the book, as I as I think you described it to me. This is a legal thriller set in World War II, <laughs> um, and you know, the, so the the point of departure from you know the sort of traditional Doolittle raid, um, you know, stories, which are you know fabulous, like we've just been talking about, right. it, and and where this book is, you know new ground and finds a lot of stuff that has never been uh, written about before, is um, the search for justice for the Doolittle Raiders mm-hmm. and. That primarily fell to a, a 40-year-old uh, army captain uh, who got drafted in 1942 into the <laughs> army um, from Rochester, New York, by the name of Robert Dwyer. Right. And to say that most of his experience during the war was mindlessly boring <laughs> um, would be an understatement. Um, right. And but nevertheless, he's you know redeployed to Shanghai. He's a he, he works in the 14th Air Force's legal department, and he gets the file. On the Doolittle Raiders, including these, um, you know, the, their first reports from August when they're first liberated, they they sit down for a lengthy interview with a guy named uh, Ham Young, who's the the head of the legal department for all of uh, the army in China, mm-hmm. and um, he sits down with this, you know, the report of this interview, and you know what a lot of the book tries to recount is what a struggle that actually is Mm -hmm. Uh, because you can't find people who've been involved right roosevelt personally promises in 1943 when this is all revealed responsible will be held individually accountable for um but dwyer is now presented with a really challenging question of who's really responsible right who who is responsible Mm -hmm. um because you could say the emperor's responsible Say you know all the little you know grunts and soldiers who held them as prison guards are responsible, right? It it runs the full gamut. You can't put you know 100, 200, 300 people on trial, right. um, even if they're all in some way responsible. Um, and so what he ultimately hits upon um, is the idea that you know the worst of what happened to the liberators, their their murder, their uh, their torture, all revolve around this trial in 1942. To this show trial, mm-hmm. and you know, not only does this trial, you know, lead to their executions, but it ends up laundering this evidence that's tortured out of them. Right? It justifies their torture in some way. Right. And he realizes that the perversion of justice that the Japanese engaged in is essentially what is the you know those who engaged in that perversion of justice are those who are really most responsible. Mm-hmm. And so he just again incredible right. This, there's no, there's no, there's no roadmap for how to do this in 1945, 1946, when he's putting this case together. Right. He identifies the Japanese judges and lawyers, as well as um, the head of the execution party um, and the Japanese general who's responsible for the whole trial. Um, 
he puts them on trial. Mm. Um, and so what you end up having in 1946 is the trial of a trial, um, right? Is right. Did the Japanese pervert justice essentially as a way of doing the paperwork for torture and murder? Um, and it, it's this just utterly stunning, brilliant innovation um, in the law, this idea that someone can uh, be responsible for torture even you know, pouring the water from the waterboard or st- sticking the pencils into someone's fingers, that right. you know their complicity in some ways is far, far more profound because they were doing it with paperwork. They were doing it with the patina of legality. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's just this amazing part of the story that unpacking how he does that is, is just – and he runs himself totally ragged. <laughs> right? He goes all over Asia. He travels tens of, like maybe not tens of thousands, but thousands of miles in these very slow 1945 airplanes uh, trying to figure out how to put this case together. Right. Um, and this is ultimately what he settles upon. Uh, and, then on, and then on the defense side, as you say, it's, it's almost just as compelling of a story. It's such, a, it's such an interesting story because the lead defense lawyer is not a lawyer. He's a decorated <laughs> pilot who flies liaison flights all over China. Right. Gets the silver star. Right. Um, And he's in Shanghai with the 14th Air Force after the war. Um, They're getting ready to send him home because they don't need combat pilots in Shanghai anymore. Um, And he unfortunately for, you know, I mean, for his career sake, falls in love with a beautiful Russian woman Mm -hmm. um, who lives in Shanghai, who's the concierge at the um, at the Broadway mansions, which is a, a hotel that uh, is repurposed to be the officers' quarters in Shanghai in 1945-1946. And uh, he needs a reason to stay in Shanghai on the Army's dime. Right. And so he solves the problem because no one wants to represent the Japanese responsible for the murder and torture and execution uh, of the Doolittle Raiders. And so uh, he's, given the, he's given the case, right? This wow. is his way. This is his ticket. So he's doing it, he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> and, and certainly when he's when he started, and he's not qualified, even a little bit. He had done a little night school uh, wow. at law school, uh, right. but he hadn't. Uh, but he had no qualifications to do this. And um, you know, I think initially he certainly expects what everyone else expects that there's going to be a trial. It's going to look fine. It's going to be a little more fair, certainly than well, it's going to be more fair than what the Japanese did. But mm-hmm. this is, you know, everyone knows the outcome, right? This is this is not that different. Right. Um, um, from what we were accusing the Japanese of, right? There's this, everyone know, everyone wants to see and everyone expects to see these men, these Japanese men executed. Oh, yes. Um, but Boudin, um, you know, for a combination of reasons that I won't spoil, um, ultimately decides that it's his job to do it right, right? It's his oh, yeah. job as the defense lawyer to ensure that they get a fair trial. And... And that's what he does. It's incredible, right? It's an incredible, like, moral choice, an incredibly difficult moral choice. Essentially ends his Air Force career uh, because he just can't just stand there as a, you know, a smartly uniformed potted plant while, you know, injustice takes right. place. He's, he's like, I have to fight. It's my, they, these men have put their lives in my hands. I have to fight for them, even though they're my enemies. Even though, had I joined the Air Force one year earlier, I could have been a Doolittle Raider and executed, right? I could be the victim in this case instead right. of the instead of the defense. Um, and so his transformation was just so fascinating to write about um, and, and how he ultimately decides to, to put on a fair trial. And the fact that um, this was a fair trial mm-hmm. is, you know, a real testament. That was the victory in a way that, that, you know, despite all the pressures to engage in the same kind of you know, expeditious justice um, that the Japanese 
engaged in, um, that we actually conducted a fair trial, um, right. that we resisted the impulse for revenge, even when we had all the power in the world to exact revenge without any limit or consequence. Um, and, and that's why I, I just found, you know, the story just kind of heartwarming. I know that's a strange way to describe a World War II story in some sure. ways. Um, but you have these two, you know, these two men facing off, you know, Robert Dwyer for the prosecution, Edmund Bodine for the defense, men of like good faith, conscience, trying mm -hmm. to do the right thing and competing uh, over what the right thing is. And, and ultimately, I think, you know, I'll, I'll let I'll let people judge for themselves, but ultimately trying to and succeeding in reaching an outcome that makes the world more just than it had been before they started. And so it's, a, you know, it's a, in times like ours, which can be pretty dark uh, and cynical. Um, I actually found this writing this book very uh, uplifting in a lot of ways. Absolutely. This this was one of the uh, the moments of the book that I, I it re renewed my faith in the human spirit because you're right. They could have easily gone down the road of revenge, and everybody everybody was expecting them to, and it would have served um, the defense well if they had just rolled over and given up, and you know they could have benefited from that. But they took their job very seriously, and the idea of fair play which I think is, it's not uniquely American, but we certainly take that seriously in our country and our culture. And so they did the best defense they could, which is going to give everybody an unexpected ending. So we're not going to ruin that for everybody. But um, in, in, in the absence of, uh, well, let me put it this way. Um, I know we're running a little long and I certainly appreciate your time, but I have to ask you based on your travels and your experience and your research, would it be fair to say that the Japanese in general have come to grips with their the atrocities that their soldiers committed during the war? I, because I know that they don't have a military today, and I don't even think they want a military today. But as far as facing what transpired during the war, w would you say that they've that they acknowledge that readily? It, it, it probably depends on who you ask, right? Uh -huh. Like Japan, like America, is a really complicated society with sure. people of different levels of education and political persuasion and ideology and, and personal connections to various historical events. So, right. um, you know, if you go like so I did a lot of my research at the Yasukuni Shrine, which is Japan's longstanding shrine to the war dead going back, you know, hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. um, but World War Two is included there. And I think anyone who goes certainly an American who goes to the Yasukuni Shrine and the Yasukuni Shrine Museum is taken aback, right. <laughs> right? Like you walk into the museum and there's a zero hanging from the ceiling, <laughs> um, wow. right? The, the perspective on the Second World War is entirely different um, than anything you'll see in the uh. United States. And it, it and, and a lot of very um, obviously glossy, rosy-eyed kind of ways mm -hmm. um, that are, are, you know, don't reckon with Japan's more sinister, you know, the more sinister parts of Japan's wartime history. Right. Um, and so, so on that side, right, there are people who are sort of deliberately refuse to reckon with history. Um, mm -hmm. But I think Japan more generally, again, it's a complex society, so I, I never would speak, you know, for the Japanese generally. Um, sure. But I think Japan has actually internalized the, you know, some of the real hard lessons of the war in ways that even countries like Germany haven't, right? Germany, I think, has done a much better job, certainly, of, of making the reckoning with its own history of atrocities, things mm -hmm. like the Holocaust, part of its cultural DNA, right? And, and sure. that's part of the education system in Germany. Um, it's not really part of the education system in Japan, the same way, not, just not. Um, however, 
um, as you said, you know, Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, um, which we forced them to adopt right. in 1946, um, but, uh, you know, forbids Japan from waging war, forbids them from having a standing army except for defensive purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's every so often politically controversial. In fact, the United States has often been the one pushing Japan to build more of a military because, um, you know, we would wanted their help initially in the Korean War. Um, now is a counterweight militarily to China. That's you know part of the U.S. strategic posture. Right. Um, but Japan itself has largely adopted a you know has has fully embraced Article Nine. Right. They they did a poll earlier this year of public support for Article Nine in mm -hmm. Japan. Um, Japan Times did it, and it was sixty nine percent. Right. So you have sixty nine percent of the Japanese population saying we want nothing to do with foreign war, right? We wow. want nothing to do with foreign adventurism, the kind of militarism that defined, you know, our, our policy in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and that's a really remarkable thing to have that kind of level of, uh, you know, I think the only thing you really call it is a kind of pacifism, mm -hmm. uh, part of the cultural DNA. And, to, for, and so for the Japanese, I think, you know, to, to step back and you know, how, how broadly speaking um, is World War II remembered, I think it's much more remembered for the suffering than right. it is for any triumph. Uh, or, or valor or vainglory, um, you know, they, they suffered, obviously, the atomic bombings. The fire bombings were far more significant in many ways than the atomic bombings were. Um, right. And that's the cultural memory of war in Japan, not the triumphalist, you know, foreign adventurism. There's, there's very little of it. There, there is an element of that, of course. It's a complex society. Right. Um, but they, they really do see their wartime experience as a chastening lesson. Um, which is why something like Article 9 is as popular as it is. Right. I, yeah, I think that speaks volumes to where they're at as a people. Um, so that's a very good point. Um, I do want to thank you, Mr. Paradis, for your time in this book. And for the listeners out there, please note that we have left masses amounts of information out, certainly <laughs> the legal aspect. We have just barely graced the service. And just to let you also know as well, because I'm a big fan of audiobooks, the gentleman that read your book, I'm sorry I don't have his name right now, but he did an excellent Thank Jacques you. Roy. Yeah, he, yeah. he did a great job reading the book, the, the, the pitch, the timing, the presentation. So the audiobook was 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 I, I almost walked my dog into uh, retirement he, he doesn't want to see me anymore but he did a great job but I, I just have to say before we go that I'm probably like most Americans. There was the Doolittle Raiders. Some of them got away. Some of them were captured. Uh, we, we gave Japan a black eye and a lot of them came home eventually. That's pretty much all I knew. I had no idea about the other side of the story. So I, I certainly wanted to, to thank you for that. I'm sure it was a, a labor of love for you, but I'm sure it took a very long time and a lot of research to do it. But as far as you're concerned, uh, can I ask what was your your biggest takeaway from this whole process, whether it's historical, whether it's legal, as far as all of these events that you uncovered, um, what did you walk up? What, what impressed you the most? Um, certainly the courage of the Doolitterators, the mm -hmm. courage of the, you know, the American lawyers, both Robert Dwyer and Edmund Bodine, just right. the moral courage and, and the stick to um, that they, that they showed under incredible political pressure. Um, so the courage of some of the Japanese, I know that's a controversial thing to say, but mm -hmm. I mean, unpacking, 
unpacking Japan's history around this was it was interesting. It, it was just interesting to see that it what there were Japanese people who who were fighting the good fight um, from within, even though they didn't succeed, and and that these needs to be recognized. Um, so those were those were sort of like some of the more heartening takeaways. I think probably to, I, I, I risk leaving on a down note, but um, <laughs> I think. But I think one of the the more disturbing takeaways that was again primarily based on you know, my research on sort of the Japanese perspective on all of this is that you know Japan was not Germany. It, it, Japan did horrible, horrible things throughout the war, mm-hmm. and you only need to look at the rape of Nanking or the Bataan Death March to get proof of that, or the you know the Battle of Manila. Right. Um, you 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 name it, right? Um, but unlike Nazi Germany, unlike you know, a uh, fascist Italy, atrocities were not the policy of the government, right? It was not a centralized system. It wasn't a country led by monsters. Um, instead, it was a country of people who really thought they were incapable of doing bad things. Mm-hmm. And and that was a really, I, frankly, disturbing and chastening insight to have, is that you can have a country of good people who do bad things for seemingly good reasons. And you can have bad people who do good things for seemingly bad reasons. Um, and that there's a moral complexity to the Pacific War um, that I think I, I certainly had no real appreciation of. And I think it offers at least you know, I mean, an opportunity to reflect on the importance of, of people standing up, like all the things that I said are really great, the people I admire in this book. Um, you know, that, that heroism really needs to be to be held up and celebrated because it's very easy, even for well-meaning people, even for countries who who think they're on the side of truth and justice, right? The Japanese didn't believe they were – the Japanese pop, public, I should say, through propaganda, right. certainly didn't believe they were engaging in torture. Um, it was a deep taboo to use torture in Japan, uh, yet they were. And it ultimately just takes good people actually standing up for the values they claim to care about, not just – Assuming that everything we're going to be doing is always, you know, on the side of of right and goodness, and and that's just shows the real heroism of people like Jimmy Doolittle's, people like the lawyers I write about in this book, um, who you know who put their put their bodies on the line um, to stand up for for what they care about, for what what's important, um, and so and and it's a, it's a sort of a, it's a warning or at least a signal to all of us that that it's our job to carry that forward right the the, the values we claim to stand up for don't stand up for themselves we have to do it um and so um i apologize if that's a slightly darker note no, no, <laughs> to end on um but it was it was certainly one of the heavier takeaways that i had in in the process of writing the book sure no uh, absolutely well said and as far as the very first part of your answer we i think we all agree that america could use some more moral courage in the face of political pressure uh just because something's expedient doesn't mean it's the best answer so no i like that very much and for all the listeners out there again the book is last mission to tokyo the extraordinary story of the doolittle raiders and their final fight for justice. Ms. Uh, Michelle Paradis, thank you very much for this book and thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.